The scripture reading this morning will be from Psalm 37. As you find that, you can stand. Psalm 37. Fret not yourself because of evildoers, be not envious toward wrongdoers, for they will wither quickly like the grass and fade like the green herb. Trust in the Lord and do good, dwell in the land and cultivate faithfulness, delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord, trust also in him and he will do it and he will bring forth your righteousness as the light in your judgment as the noonday. Rest in the Lord and wait patiently for him. Fret not yourself because of him who prospers in his way, because of the man who carries out wicked schemes. Cease from anger and forsake wrath. Fret not yourself. It leads only to evildoing. For evildoers will be cut off, but those who wait for the Lord, they will inherit the land. Yet a little while, and the wicked man will be no more. And you will look carefully for his place, and he will not be there. But the humble will inherit the land and will delight themselves in abundant prosperity. Let's pray. Father, we are again um, grateful for what you have given us in your word. All of it, Lord, that we might be taught of you and instructed, trained, reproved, Lord, um, corrected that your good and effective work would be done in us in bringing us into greater conformity to Jesus. And so, God, we just want to yield again to you and all that you want to say to us, that you would speak to us by your Spirit through your Word. And we thank you that you will always lead us into what is true and good. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. If you can turn in Bibles to um, 1 Samuel 24. 1 Samuel 24. These three chapters, 24, 25, and 26, really go together. Uh, We've been looking at the life of of David now um, as we've been working through the book of 1 Samuel. And David's on the run from Saul, who is bent on destroying him. And in chapter 24, David has a chance to kill Saul. In chapter 26, he's given a second chance to kill Saul. And in, the, in, in between, um, David is about to kill a man named Nabal and all those who work for him. And so these are three chapters about vengeance, really, and how to respond to it. There's more than just that, but, but that is the one theme that controls these three chapters is is vengeance, both those who seek it and in response to those who are seeking it. It's really pretty simple what the scripture says regarding um, taking revenge. Don't. Um, In Romans chapter 12, we're told, do not take your own vengeance. But rather, um, God says, vengeance is mine, and I will repay, thus saith the Lord. I used to quote that verse to my brothers as I was beating on them and saying, vengeance is the Lord's, but he likes to share. Um, 
That is the McCall addition to Scripture. You're not supposed to do that. He doesn't share, um, at least not with individuals. We do know that God has raised up government to execute justice, but he has not put justice in the power of the individual. And so no matter what happens to us individually, we do not have the right biblically to seek vengeance, to repay um, evil for evil. But rather, the scripture says that we are to overcome evil with good. And we are to repay evil with good and leave vengeance to God. And God will execute vengeance sooner or later. But this is no small thing, um, responding to the one who is just absolutely bent on our destruction. And occasionally there are people who come into our lives like that, that it seems that they are never going to be happy until they have our blood. And Saul was that way with David. So we start in chapter 24, it says, Now it came about when Saul returned from pursuing the Philistines, he was told, saying, Behold, David is in the wilderness of Engedi. Then Saul took 3,000 chosen men from all Israel. So this is his elite fighting force. And went to seek David and his men in front of the rocks of the wild goats. And he came to the sheepfolds on the way, and there was a cave. And Saul went in to relieve himself. Now David and his men, 600 of them, were sitting in the inner recesses of the cave. Now you'd have to think, God did this. Right? Of all the times and places Saul could have chosen to go to the bathroom, he chooses this time and this place with 600 men looking at him. And then David's men said to him, God has just done a good thing. No more need to run. No more need to live in caves. He's here all by himself. And he's pretty vulnerable. You won't have any trouble killing him. So 600 men are saying to David, verse 4, Behold, this is the day which the Lord said to you, Behold, I'm about to give your enemy into your hand, and you shall do to him as seems good to you. Now, I don't know where that verse is in the Bible. It's like me saying God shares when he exercises vengeance. But these men... They, they're telling David, God has told you this. Now, God hadn't told David that. But it would have been very tempting for David to believe when 600 of your friends are saying, this is what God has said. Wouldn't we be tempted to say, this is what God has said. Then David rose up and he cut off the edge of Saul's robe secretly. That's all he did. And it came about afterward that David's conscience bothered him because he had cut off the robe, the edge of Saul's robe. Why did his conscience bother him? Because the robe is part of Saul. And you have no right, David was saying, in his own mind, he has no right to touch the king or even the king's clothing. So he said to his men, and you know, those men must have been thinking as they watched David sneak forward, They're thinking, this is it. Because this is not just the enemy of David. This is the enemy of all 600 of these men. 
If Saul had found any of them, he would have killed them. They all had their own personal grievances with Saul. And they all knew Saul deserved to die for, how, for what he has done. And so as David crept closer, they're probably all just saying, thank you, Jesus. Right? This is the time when our troubles come to an end. This is our enemy, and he's about to die. And they probably couldn't believe it when all David did was take out his dagger and cut off a piece of Saul's robe. And then he came back and says, I shouldn't have even done that. You've got to be kidding. So verse 6, David said to his men, Far be it from me because of the Lord that I should do this thing to my Lord, the Lord's anointed, to stretch out my hand against him since he is the Lord's anointed. And David persuaded his men with these words because they were probably wanting to rush Saul and kill him. And he did not allow them to rise up against Saul. What power? One man against 600 saying, no, you're not going to kill him. And Saul arose and left the cave and went on his way, had no idea of everything that's been transpiring right there in the cave. Now afterward, David arose and went out of the cave, and he called after Saul, saying, My Lord, the king. And when Saul looked behind him, David bowed with his face to the ground and prostrated himself. And David said to the Lord, Why do you listen to the words of men, saying, Behold, David seeks to harm you? Behold, this day your eyes have seen that the Lord had given you today into my hand in the cave. And some said to kill you, but my eye had pity on you. And I said, I will not stretch out my hand against the Lord, for he is the Lord's anointed. Now, my father, see, indeed, see the edge of your robe in my hand. For in that I cut off the edge of your robe and did not kill you, know and perceive that there is no evil or rebellion in my hands, and I have not sinned against you, though you are lying in wait for my life to take it. So David three times here, twice in verse 6 and then again in verse 10, speaks of Saul being God's anointed. And that as God's anointed, David says, I have no right to touch him much less take his life. Where is that in the Bible? Now, I, don't, I am not disagreeing with David. I believe that David was right. He has no right to take the life of God's anointed. But I can't find that verse in the Bible. Can you? Let me know if you find it. Maybe it's there and I just missed it. I don't know any commentary that would say that David would have been right to have killed Saul. All the ones I've read said David was spot on. He was right. 600 men were wrong. David was right. But I don't think, I've not seen any commentary that has taken, takes it back to a, a specific verse in Scripture that says, you cannot kill God's anointed. But we look at it now from our perspective, 3,000 years later, and we go, he was right. You don't kill God's anointed. But how did David know that? There is no verse that I know of that says you can't kill God's anointed. So how did he come to that? 
And I think that we, what we have here, what leaps out to me at least, is, is a, the issue of how do we, how did David determine that this was God's will? When there is not a specific verse that speaks to it, but he was absolutely convinced, I cannot kill this man. So it would seem that David is doing some spiritual conjecture. Not all conjecture is wrong. Much of it is, but not always. He knows that God put Saul on the throne. And that was end of the story. Just simply based on that one truth, God put Saul on the throne. David saying, what right do I have to take him off of it. That was enough. Who are we to undo what God has done? Who are we to seek to change what God has said? We can't. This is why scripture says, do not add to my word and do not take away from my word. We are not to try to change what God has done. And if God put this man on the throne, then David says, who am I? To take him off of it. And I believe David was thinking correctly. His men were wrong. Just because David had the opportunity, and the opportunity repeats itself in chapter 26, opportunity does not equate with permission, as one writer puts it. That's worth thinking on. Just because you have the opportunity, and it looks so exceptional. How could this have happened? It almost appears miraculous. That is not to be taken as God's permission. Think about how many decisions would be not made, how many things we would not do if we simply didn't take the opportunity as being an expression of God's will. I'm amazed. I know I'm, you know, we're, we're all in this boat. But it amazes me when I hear people say, surely God wanted this because the opportunity was there. <gasps> really? I mean, we would teach our children, if you're walking through Walmart... And you come across somebody's wallet on the floor. You pick up the wallet and you take it over to customer service. And you say, someone lost their wallet. You don't say, finders, keepers, losers, weepers. Right? You don't just open up the wallet and say, wow, there's a lot of money here. Praise God. I needed some money. You don't say, look how God provided You say, somebody lost their wallet, and I need to return it. But there are so many other things that are much more serious than finding a lost wallet. And I'm thinking especially about wedding vows, folks. I mean, why do we keep our vows? 
And those vows say, even if there is opportunity to do otherwise, I am going to be exclusively devoted to this person until I die. Even if there's opportunity. I'm not going to take that opportunity. Because I know what God has said. And when we say, what God has joined together, let no man put asunder. How is that any different than what David was saying? God put this man on the throne. How can I take him off of it? God puts these two people together. Who am I to look for an opportunity to destroy, to put asunder what God has put together? There are so many things we do. David is willing to to wait on God. That's why I read Psalm 47. I'm sorry, 37. Fret not yourself because of the evildoer. Wait on the Lord. Cultivate faithfulness in the land. And he will give you the desires of your heart. One of the hardest things to do is wait on God. And how much harder for David when 600 men are saying, this is your chance, take it. But he says, I will not act on my own behalf. I will not take the initiative to do for myself what I know God is wanting to do. God can remove him. Psalm 37 says, in a moment, the evildoer will be cut off. And you'll look, and his place will be gone. And David says, I'll wait. In my reading, one writer I really appreciated, um, F.B. Meyer, talked about waiting on God. And the basis for waiting on God is simply God's promise that he will do it. Whenever the moment came for David to sit on the throne, David wanted to be able to say in his heart, it would be from the first to the last, the result of God's gift and God's performance, that there would be nothing to hinder God from saying, I have set my king upon my holy hill, Zion. And when David took the throne, he could say that. God did it. I didn't just take the opportunity. I waited on God and saw God do it. The believer, the, the behavior that waiting for God induces, F.B. Meyer says, one, it restrains crime and keeps the conscience clean. David was restrained in committing a crime and even restrained others from committing a crime. Because he was willing to wait on God. It also inspires courage. Because his conscience is clean, he can with courage come out of that cave and stand before Saul and say, Saul, I could have killed you, but I didn't. He had the courage to face his enemy because he waited on God. He gave David rest, knowing that God is his defender, his protector. And he could trust him. And when we wait on God, it even encourages brokenness and penitence in the hearts of others. Saul listens to David. He's going to say both in chapter 24 and 26, he says, I'm the one that's wrong here. You're a better man than I am. I know one day that you will rule. Look at verse 20 of chapter 24. And now behold, Saul speaking, I know that you shall surely be king. And that the kingdom of Israel shall be established in your hand. 
a man waiting upon God with clean hands, and it brings about a penitence in the life of Saul. Didn't last, we know, but it moved him and brought him to, at least for this temporary time, confession and repentance. He's not defending himself. He's not touching God's anointed. He's waiting on God. Unfortunately, there are a lot of pastors that consider themselves um, beyond being able to be reproved, beyond correction, because they are God's anointed. Talked to a guy that's working on his PhD at a seminary. Um, Just recently, I was speaking to him, and he's a grader for um, men that are working on on their Masters of Divinity and other advanced degrees. And many of these men are already pastors. And he writes, he's grading papers where they're writing about the authority they have as pastors. And, um, and how much of the trouble they've had in their churches is because people don't recognize their authority. And it stinks. And as a grader, he's commenting and says, well, when did God die and make, let you take his place? Um... David is, is expressing humility. He himself is God's anointed. And I believe that what David is, is saying here is not just that Saul is king, but he's a man. And what right does he have to take the life of another man? Now again, as king, you have the, the government has the right to exercise capital punishment against those who have committed capital crimes. We understand that from the word of God. But David seems to be reluctant to touch this man because he's God's anointed. And I look at God's word on this, and I come to 1 John chapter 2, which is the principal passage in the New Testament that talks about anointing. And if you just look at that just quickly with me, 1 John chapter 2, verse 20 and verse 27. But you have an anointing from the Holy One, speaking to all Christians. You all have an anointing from God. And then verse 27. And as for you, the anointing which you receive from him abides in you, and you have no need for anyone to teach you, but as his anointing teaches you about all things, and is true and is not a lie, and just as it is taught you, you abide in him. So in these two verses, anointing is mentioned three times. And in all three instances, every Christian is said to be the recipient of this anointing. Not just pastors, in other words. Now, this is the primary passage in the New Testament you have to go to if you're going to look at anointing. We use anointing today and we talk about people who have a special enabling by God. And we say they are anointed by God. Scripture doesn't really use it in that way, not in the New Testament at least. It does talk about God giving grace in a special way, giving a greater measure of grace. But it doesn't speak of, getting, of, of some people having an anointing that other people don't have. What the New Testament says is every Christian has the anointing of God. Every Christian. 
And so it would be wrong for a pastor to say, you can't criticize me, you can't correct me, you can't hold me accountable because I am God's anointed. That is a mishandling of God's word. We all have an anointing from God. And nobody is above correction or unaccountable. And so I think that we need to keep that in mind as we deal with one another. That is, David was, was sober and cautious in his judgment because this man was God's anointed. We should be exhibiting some of the same sobriety, caution, as we deal with each other. Take care. And don't take into your own hands what is God's business to do. When David resisted these men and the opportunity that he had to kill Saul, and again in chapter 26, he's going to crawl up to Saul at night. He'll have Abishai, one of his nephews, with him. Abishai will say, we're right here. We've crawled through 3,000 men. He's asleep. His spear is right here at his head. Just take the spear out of the ground and let me run him through. I'll do it with one stroke. Just one stroke. The guy's dead. And David again says no. And four times in chapter 26, he says, we're not going to touch God's anointed. So he took his spear and took his water jug, and they made their way out through the camp, and then they yelled into the, from the darkness, and David told Saul that he once again had spared his life. And I'll just make a couple of observations from this principle that David is conducting himself from of the Lord's anointed and resisting the impulse, the the. The, the advice of all these other people. One is the obvious conclusion, the conclusion that is, seems to be so blatantly obvious to the majority is not always correct. We must learn to think with minds set above from God's values, for His glory, and not from our own self-interest takes the grace of God because we all think about ourselves first we must think from God's kingdom and his glory first and when we do that it will caution us from acting on our own behalf in independence of God I think we see in this that common sense common sense God has given this man to you David is not always spiritual. In fact, it can be extremely carnal. Where the last thing God wants us to do is the thing that seems obvious, apparent, and common sense. It's what God is saying, you need to think from my mind. Everyone can be wrong in what they approve and in what they encourage. That certainly applies today. My kids tell me about what they see from Christian kids on Facebook, how they're encouraging each other in ungodliness. When somebody comes out and says, I'm homosexual, and all their Christian friends are saying, we're so happy for you that you're showing the courage and that you're living the life that, you know, God's created you to live. I'm going, really? How did we get to this place? Everyone can be wrong in what they approve and what they encourage. They surely can. 
What does God say in his word? And we may be the only one who's saying this is what God says. But we will be held accountable for listening to all the other voices instead of to God. In chapter 25, 24, 26, pretty straightforward. Immense pressure on David to kill Saul. He resists the pressure because Saul is God's anointed. Good for you, David. He's waiting on God. He's determining that God's will for not killing Saul is simply based on the truth that God put Saul on the throne. So that's all the information he needs. Chapter 25 is a little more difficult. And it's sandwiched between these two chapters for a reason. Chapter 24, he is not acting on his own initiative. Chapter 26, he is not acting on his own initiative. He is not going to kill Saul. Chapter 25, there's this guy named Nabal. Nabal's a fool. Nabal's a rich man with 3,000 sheep. And Nabal has been having his shepherds take his sheep out into the Judean desert, grazing them out there wherever they can, the bad lands of Israel, and not a single sheep has been lost and not a single shepherd threatened because David's 600 men have been protecting him for months. And it's just Nabal is so into himself and and so self-occupied, he has no idea why he has been so prospered during this season. Because he won't listen to anybody. And so he has a shearing time, and that's a time of feasting and celebration. David knew that it was when the man could count his wealth and, and celebrate it. And so David sends ten men to say, Would you mind giving me something for the protection that I've been giving you and your men for all these months? And so verse 5 of chapter 25, So David sent ten young men, and David said to the young men, Go up to Carmel, visit Nabal, and greet him in my name. And thus you shall say, Have a long life. Peace be to you, and peace to your house, and peace to all that you have. And now I have heard that you have shears. Now your shepherds have been with us, and we have not insulted them, nor have they missed anything all the days that they were in Carmel. Ask your young men, and they will tell you. Therefore, let my young men find favor in your eyes, for we have come on a festive day. Please give whatever you find at hand to your servants and to your son, David. David was probably expecting quite a bit because he sent ten men to carry it back. And he got nothing but an insult. And so, picking up in verse 13... After Nabal has insulted David, said, Who is this man? He's breaking away from his father's house. He's a fugitive from his king. David said to his men, Each of you gird on his sword. We're going to go kill some people. And David was prepared to kill, to murder Nabal and all of his male servants because he insulted him. Isn't that interesting? He's willing to spend 10 years of his life running from Saul and not lifting a hand against him. But he won't take an insult from this man. On the one hand, humility toward Saul. But toward Nabal, he's pricked his pride. And he's going to kill him. Nabal has a beautiful, wise wife 
We're told in verse 3, And the man's name was Nabal, and his wife's name was Abigail, and the woman was intelligent and beautiful in appearance, but the man was harsh and evil in his dealings. So Abigail hears what Nabal has done, and she realizes we're dead. And so she gets some of her servants, loads them up with as much food as they can carry, and sends them out toward David, and she gets on her, on her mule, and she goes out there as fast as she can. Verse 23. And when Abigail saw David, she hurried and dismounted from her donkey and fell on her face before David and bowed herself to the ground. And David has 400 men with him at this point. 200 he's left back with the stuff. And she fell at his feet and said, On me alone, my Lord, be the blame. And please let your maidservant speak to you and listen to the words of your maidservant. Please do not let my Lord pay attention to this worthless man, Nabal. For as his name is, so he is. Nabal is his name and folly is with him. But I, your maidservant, did not see the young men of my Lord whom you sent. Now, therefore, my Lord, as the Lord lives and as as your soul lives, since the Lord has restrained you from shedding blood and from avenging yourself by your own hand, now then let your enemies and those who seek evil against my Lord be as Nabal. That God has restrained you from avenging yourself. She knew that. Everybody knew that. Don't let this be an exception. Don't now start avenging yourself. Verse 28, please forgive the transgression of your maidservant, for the Lord will certainly make my Lord an enduring house because the Lord is fighting the battles of the Lord and evil should not be done in you all your days. And then she speaks of him being appointed ruler over Israel and him being able to sit on the throne without having the guilt of having avenged himself. Verse 31, and that this will not cause grief or a troubled heart to my Lord, both by having shed blood without cause which is murder, and by my Lord having avenged himself. When the Lord shall deal well with the Lord, then remember your maidservant. And David's impressed. And he gets down off his donkey. And he tells her, you've kept me today from doing evil. I would have killed your husband and every single man he had. That's what David says. He takes the small gift that she had. And he went back to his cave. And God deals with Nabal. He was drunk out of his mind that night. She knew that she couldn't speak to him, so she waited till the next morning. And she said, by the way, let me tell you what could have happened last night. And he apparently had a stroke. And ten days later, he died. God took him out. David didn't need to lift a hand. And then David says, well, now Abigail's a widow. And opportunity is presenting itself. But remember, does opportunity equal permission? It didn't when it came to avenging himself on Saul. But now opportunity is presenting itself again. A young, beautiful, intelligent woman who's recently been made a widow. And David says, looks like permission to me. There's no record here once again of David seeking God when it came to this woman. David's going to take eight wives and many concubines, and there is not record of a single time does he ask God before he does it. Opportunity does not equal permission. 
David already has two wives. Now, one of them has been taken away and given to another man. That's at the end of the verse, end of the chapter, verse 2044. Now, Saul had given Michael, his daughter, David's wife, to Palti, the son of Laish, who was from Galim. But in verse 43, David had also previously taken Ahinanam of Jezreel, and they both became his wives. So however you look at it, this is his, at least his second wife. It seems to me, God's word has a lot more to say about monogamy than it does about touching God's anointed. I can't find a single verse that speaks about touching God's anointed. But there are a lot of verses that talk about monogamy. For this cause, a man shall leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife, singular. Scripture is full of references that God created one man, one woman for each other, and that's the way Jesus says it was always intended to be. So David is willing to use his sanctified thinking when there is no verse that says, don't touch God's anointed, to say, I don't need a verse because I know God put him on the throne. That's enough. But when God has spoken explicitly about a marriage being monogamous, one man for one woman, somehow he needs more. Something's not right here with David. He never will consult God on this issue. We're not so different. On these areas that don't touch my personal life as much, my being sexually satisfied, my not going through life alone, whatever it is, Lord, I need more than what your word has said. And we are so often apt to say opportunity equals permission. But in other areas that don't touch us quite as personally, not quite as deeply, we find it easier to understand what God is saying in his word, even when others encourage us to say otherwise. I appreciate, again, what one writer said about Abigail in her situation. Wise, beautiful woman in a bad marriage. F.B. Meyer again. You must stay where you are. The dissimilarity between you and your husband in taste and temperament does not constitute a sufficient reason for leaving your husband to drift. He's not even talking about leaving your husband in divorce. He just says even leaving your husband to his own devices. If you're married to a man, you women, who is not where you are spiritually, maybe he's a fool. That doesn't give you permission to not be involved in his life and working actively to his good, as Abigail did. She sought his protection when she went out to David and held him back. You must believe that God has permitted you to enter on this awful heritage 
partly because this fiery ordeal of your bad marriage is something that God will use for your character. And partly that you might act as a counteractive influence in the life of your husband. You must stay as you are. You can always keep your soul clean and pure. Abigail was a picture of that. And I'm sure that when she found herself suddenly a widow, she wondered, what do I do now? But David was not the answer. And I believe David was wrong. He got it right by not killing Saul. He was not right to take another wife. Opportunity does not equal permission. He was patient and self-restrained toward God's anointed. He was impatient and murderous toward Nabal who simply insulted him and who had diminished him. One thing we can withstand easily, another thing just as a simple pinprick and can cause us to explode. The victories which I win, this author says, by the grace of God and through the power of the blood of Jesus cannot impart strength to me for the future. David had victory with Saul. He did not have victory when it came to Nabal. No spiritual triumph in my life can give me power to resist the devil the next time he comes. There is nothing so sinful but that I, keep, that I may fall to it any time unless moment by moment I am being kept in his love. To show restraint in dealing with one person who has been unkind, high-handed, hateful is no guarantee that an unguarded moment may not come when I will say I am going to, to wreak my vengeance on this person, especially if it is someone to whom I think I am superior. Even though for years... We have shown restraint in one area, on one level, on that very same thing. When, when we have been attacked by somebody else, we may suddenly find that even a pinprick can cause us to explode. David didn't handle Nabal's insult very well. We thank God that Abigail stopped him from shedding innocent blood. But David understood the will of God clearly, crystal clear, when it came to him not touching Saul. But when it came to the area of marriage, he says, I'll do what I want. <clears throat> Nothing's changed. David's heart is ours. And I believe the lessons here speak for themselves. In every area of our life, God wants us to humbly come to him with open hands, waiting on him, not taking life in our own hands, saying, I will do for myself. Either if it comes from defending ourselves, seeking our own vengeance, but also when it comes to marriage and relationships. But being yielded to him, Lord Jesus, your will be done, not mine. I'll close us in prayer. Heavenly Father, I do thank you for, again, um, speaking to us in your word. I pray, God, that I've not gone beyond anything that you is true of you in what you've said. And Lord, we all um, 
go astray in our hearts. And we are a self-protective people because of sin. And I pray, Lord, that we would learn increasingly to live with putting into your hands our protection, our well-being, our desire for love and fulfillment, and that we would let you, God, meet these things and not seek to act independent of you, being God ourselves. So we are not you alone, our protector, our defender, our provider, and it is to you we look. Thank you, God, that we can wait on you in every area of life. We need not fret. And we can cultivate faithfulness where you have placed us and know that you will give us the desires of our heart. In Jesus' name, amen.